Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Uh, Before I read this passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he had blessed not only the reading of his word, but also the preaching of it. Our Father and our God, we come before you again in the name of Christ. You have told us in your word and by your word that your word will not return unto you void. We ask as we turn to the words of Jesus Christ, these words that you infallibly inspired St. Luke to record for our benefit by your Holy Spirit. We ask that these words would go forth in power that these words would be written upon our heart, that these words would be a light unto us, that these words would open up to us your mind, your promises, your grace, and that they might empower us to stand firm upon Jesus Christ, to do that, to which, to do that uh, which you have called us to do, uh, to his glory and for his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word uh, from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 10, again, verses 17 through 20. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever and his people said, Amen. We have here the return of the 70 that we read were sent out at the beginning of the chapter. Just like in chapter 9, when the 12 are sent out on their mission, uh, they come back with great joy at the success of it, as if they were somewhat surprised by it, uh, which is understandable. Uh, They were uh, being sent on uh, apart from the presence of Jesus Christ and to find that the power of Jesus Christ was with them even then, is something that, while I'm sure they believed with faith, uh, that they were uh, nevertheless, by the experience of it, overjoyed. This, by the way, should find a parallel in our own hearts. Uh, Particularly in a life of prayer, we trust that the Lord hears our prayer, or we wouldn't pray. Uh, We hope that the Lord will answer our prayer again, or we wouldn't pray. But how often are we nevertheless shocked when we find that God answers those prayers uh, firmly and clearly? Uh, and, And those times that he does so in such a way that there can be no denying that he answers those prayers are times of great joy for us, not because we didn't believe, but we have our faith confirmed for us. And this was one of the things that the, the, the 70 were coming back with great joy. If you note and, and read above those instructions that were given, they were going to house to house and in the house that they were 
there in the towns that they were to reside. They were to preach the gospel and they were to heal the sick. He doesn't actually mention that they were casting out devils like he does to the, uh, the 12 in the beginning of chapter 9. But nevertheless, uh, we draw from this that uh, while the mention isn't made, that those same instructions given to the 12 were given to the 70 as well. And they find that Satan has no power or the devils have no power uh, against the gospel that they preach. And this is one of the great joys of it. This is one of the great joys of the gospel to see it go forth in power. Note that they are not rejoicing in their own power, that the devils were cast out in thy name, O Lord. Uh, They are rejoicing. Their their joy is not pride. It could lead to that. Um, but this is not what's at issue in this passage. Uh, these, were give, these 70 were giving all glory to Jesus Christ. And, and it is one of the great joys of the gospel, as I mentioned, uh, that Satan and his kingdom is pushed back, cast down, and trampled upon. But it's not the only joy. And, and Jesus uh, gives in verse 20... Uh, that greater joy. He uses uh, a, a figure of speech we find in Scripture a great deal. Uh, we use it sometimes in English, but it's not one of those. It's one of these we import from other languages, but where we, uh, in, to make a comparison to, between two, one is greater than the other, we, we exaggerate it and oppose them. So when he says, in this rejoice not, but rather rejoice, it's a, it's a figure of speech in the Greek uh, saying, that this is a great joy, but this is a greater joy that your names are written in heaven. So let's look at both these things uh, because uh, both of these are joys. And in Jesus comments upon them as such. In fact, what Jesus does to the, the what he says first expands their joy. In verse 17. Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, we don't want to emphasize unto us uh, there. Their, their joy was the fact they recognized that they were just mission uh, uh, ambassadors of the power of Christ. What Christ did in his own name and by his own power and by his own word, they did through Jesus Christ. And those afflicted with devil possession and we've seen how bad that can be we're delivered it had real power and Jesus responds to them in a very strange way uh, they, they are rejoicing about this and Jesus says I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven Jesus is telling them that what they see in the subordinates, the root rooting that they are, the routing that they see of the great enemy soldiers, is a sign that the great enemy's kingdom has fallen. Now, if we wanted to get technical here, we might uh, wonder when did Satan's kingdom actually fall? Was it with the preaching of the seventy? Je- Jesus will say a similar thing later on. Uh, Jesus, uh, closer towards the end of his ministry, earthly ministry, uh, he will uh, many things will be said um, with the fall of Satan and his kingdom in other contexts throughout the New Testament. Uh, ultimately, 
in the book of Revelation. Uh, most likely, and, and we see this even in, in the Gospel of Luke, that kingdom, the, the kingdom of, of Satan uh, suffered its mortal blow in the contest between Satan and Jesus Christ in the 40 days in the wilderness. It is what opened up the way, if you will, for the ministry of Jesus Christ. That is why in his anointing uh, that the first act that he does is go forth uh, to wage battle against the enemy. But it's certainly true also that the march of the gospel goes forth in the preaching of his word, even before Christ has firmly undone the power of Satan in his own death and resurrection, the kingdom is falling in the presence of the gospel. Christ's gospel is designed to cast down Satan's kingdom. If you turn to Acts chapter 26, uh, Paul and one of his, if you remember when we went through Acts, uh, Paul had to give a, an account of his conversion several times after his imprisonment uh, in Caesarea. Uh, in Acts 26, verses 15 through 18, we have uh, one of these accounts. And he said, uh, in the middle of it, when, when Christ said, came to him, he says, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. One of the things that happens when the gospel is preached, when the word of Christ is proclaimed, is that the kingdom of Satan is pushed back. When an unbeliever becomes a believer, Satan's kingdom has already lost its power, has already uh, been uh, looted, and has already been dealt a mortal blow. This is because part of what gives sin its, its strength is an outside influence. That there is not just, it's not just that sin brings us into destruction and the condemnation of God. It does those things. But God also hands us over to the tempter that leads us to sin. And there is a power that Satan wields over those who sin. And his power is all about enslavement. And we see this phenomenon. Uh, when God withholds his grace and his mercy, when he seeks to pull forth the full judgment upon sin, he doesn't... He doesn't bring forth the hail and the brimstone immediately. What he does, we see this in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh. We see this all throughout uh, the history of, of, of the judges and, and of the kings, of prophets. We see this in the New Testament even. The, 
Paul speaks of this in Romans. What does he do? He just hands them over to their sin. That there is an enslaving quality about it. That when the Lord withholds His grace, when He withholds His restraint, what happens is, is that with the sin, there's also shackles to more sin. And we shouldn't over make this an issue of psychology because there really is an active power behind it seeking to enslave us. Paul, writing to the Ephesians in chapter 6, Finally, my brethren, verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That there is an active warfare against another. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is, this is the, the reality of our, of our conflict within our hearts and in the world. That there is, and now it's not fought the same way. We don't pick up uh, 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 holy swords and stab uh, fleshly fiendish devils to make them bleed to death. We don't take uh, bullets, dip them in the holy water and, and shoot the, 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 the hobgoblins and the fiends and all that sort of thing. The warfare is waged spiritually, but it is warfare, and it's against an enemy. The temptation to sin, your bondage to sin, when you find yourself making allowances for your particularly favored sin, understand you are capitulating to an enemy, and you are playing his games, and you're becoming his fool, and you are being outwitted by his wiles, says Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. But the gospel goes forth. And that's our great blessing. And while we have to equip ourselves with the whole armament of God, and he goes through the armament, and it's all the, uh, the, the, the works and the pieties and, and the privileges of the gospel the graces that he has given us so that we might pray and uh, be equipped with his power because the gospel robs the devil of his tools for bondage. I mean, how does the devil bind you to himself? Well, he makes false promises. He, he tells us that, that these pleasures that he is putting before us are real pleasures that it will satisfy us even though by our own experience, if we've lived any little bit of time upon the earth, will tell us that, that all pleasures are vanities. And they have a limited sort of, of, of effect. Even good things that aren't the Lord are finite things and therefore could only give finite pleasure. The gospel robs that tool from him because it opens our eyes to the truth. The gospel also robs the devil. I mean, what does the devil mean? The accuser. 
Because we, we feel like, well, I've sinned, I'm not perfect, I might as well, I, I, I can't, I, it would be hypocritical for me to pursue holiness because I'm not worthy of the Lord. That's the devil. That's the devil trying to rob you of the joy of the gospel, to make you forget that Jesus Christ stands in your place and he has a perfect righteousness that no one can gainsay because if God is going to accept him, who is the devil? Remember Job. Remember what Job is doing. His devotion to you, Lord, is mercenary. He only loves you because you bless him. Take away all his blessings and he will curse you. That was false. The Lord allowed the devil to take away all those things so he would confirm Job's faith to the devil. Job had to endure a great deal, but Job persevered because he knew that even though the Lord uh, was bringing him through hard times, that his only hope was the Lord. And even though the Lord didn't ever tell him why he suffered, he at least knew his name was written in heaven, that God answered him out of the whirlwind. The things that the devil uses to enslave us are are a guilty conscience, a lack of power over temptation, a lack of understanding of the truth. And these are all things that Jesus Christ takes away. He robs him of his tools and therefore the kingdom of Satan cannot stand. Historically, this is the case. Uh, When the gospel went forth, it went forth in a world that is utterly and completely unlike our own. The last vestiges of this sort of world would be India today, of just out-and-out idolatry. But even there, it's different because the political forces, while they support this idolatry, they're not ruled by the idolatry. That was not the case in Roman Rome, in the Roman world at the time. That there were literally... Dark powers in high places. And the gospel cut it down. And when the world that the gospel made forgot that grace and became or started to become dark again, the gospel went forth in power and cut down a new form of idolatry. We live in a world filled with dark things in high places. And the gospel will go forth, hopefully, in our lives and in our communities, that we will not be resting on our laurels, that we would not be found uh, lazy soldiers for the gospel of God, but with us in small places and small beginnings, the darkness of the world will be cut down. Satan's kingdom cannot stand against it. And it cannot stand against it because Christ's disciples are empowered by Christ against the enemy. So in verse 19, he says, I beheld you. You just see little victories, 
But in your little victories, I want you to understand that Satan himself is being cast down. And then he goes on in verse 19. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. That's a big promise. Uh, He's speaking of the tools of the enemy. Uh, the, 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 The serpents and the scorpions... Uh, it's a word sometimes that uh, was, was, is taken to be uh, as akin as a to dragons, and, and therefore it's very appropriate. It's appropriate also because of what he's promising to them. They're going to tread them down, so he's using the tools of Satan that we would tread upon, such as serpents and uh, vipers and, and uh, scorpions. Uh, he's telling them, first and foremost, that there will be such things set against them. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after that ye have suffered a little while, will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. For you see, even there, in Paul's mind, while the devil is a roaring lion, he is one that is impotent against a watchful, gospel-believing people. He is equipping your soldiers. And notice in this that there is a dual sort of, of, of promise here. It's, it's power to do two things. To tread upon the enemy... Is in Romans 16, verse 20. And the God of all peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with you all. Amen. This is a clear reference to the condemnation of Satan in the Garden of Eden. When he said that there shall be enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And you shall bruise his heel and he sh- shall crush your head. And so we see played out in the very... It's a promise to Adam and Eve, but it's given as a condemnation of the devil. Of the fate of the two kingdoms. Of Christ, the second Adam. And of the serpent. And we play a part in that. So we're given the power of Christ to rage war against the enemy. And also there is the power of Christ to be protected against the enemy. And nothing he does shall ever hurt you. In the work of my work. He will not be able to thwart my work. Does that mean that, that the disciples were not going to suffer? Does it mean that they weren't going to die? The New Testament itself answers that question. No, it doesn't. But it does mean that they are incapable of being taken as prisoners of war by the kingdom of Satan. That they're incapable of having their work become ineffectual by the work of Satan. If they fail, it is their own failure. But Christ will be glorified in them. That even as Paul was in prison, he could write to, in Rome, and he could write to the Philippians saying, I rejoice, even those that do not like me, because I'm in prison, are preaching the gospel more faithfully than they were before. Christ is being magnified, even though I am in chains. So no, the devil has not got anything done by my chains. 
He doesn't say that exactly, but that's what he's saying. This is a promise of old. And Psalm 91, uh, this, this promise is being reflected in the words of Jesus Christ here. And Psalm 91, verses 13 uh, and, and following, Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under your feet, because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he hath known my name, saith the Lord. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. And with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And so Paul can take the promises and the glory of Jesus Christ, treading down Satan under his feet, and say to the church in Rome, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet also. And he would say to us, that Satan will be tread under your feet also in Jesus Christ. That is a marvelous, marvelous promise. And, And why would this promise not be the greatest joy to his church? Because there's one thing of greater joy and of more importance. And Jesus takes this time right at the height of it. And he lifts them up even higher. The devils were cast out. Not only that, Satan fell like lightning at the thunder of the gospel. And then he goes on, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So why is this greater? Why is the the casting out of the devils lesser? Frankly, The power to cast out devils is not a sign of God's favor. First and foremost, it's a wonderful joy to have, but there will be those that can do it and will do it that don't have the favor of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name has cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. (coughs) Casting out devils is part of God's work against the enemy. But understand that God has protected his church with enemies before. He used a Pharaoh to shelter Israel through seven years of famine. He used Nebuchadnezzar to punish his people. He raised up Cyrus to bring his people out of captivity. But none of those people were part of God's covenant. And while Nebuchadnezzar may have been redeemed by God's grace, Uh, It's not exactly clear. And the other great men of, of, of world history that are prophesied in Scripture, including Alexander the Great, uh, these were men untouched by the gospel and will not be known and recognized by Christ Jesus at the end of time. These are gifts God uses for a particular purpose. They're gifts from Christ for a time. 
And even as they typically are in the hands of his saints, even then, it's for a work that needs doing. It's, it's not our standing before the Lord. And this is why a name in heaven is a better joy. His favor is eternal. And the joy of it won't ever fade. If you look at 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10-11, you know, he, he goes on, add to your faith, virtue, virtue this, uh, goes up to love. It's all these Christian uh, good works. And he, he's doing this not as a way to earn our salvation, but as he says in chapter, verses 8 and 9, as a way to make sure our salvation, to be assured that uh, the grace that we claim with our mouth is actually working in our hearts. And he says in verse 10, Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. And so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a better joy because it is an eternal joy. There will come a time when Satan has no kingdom to thwart. When Satan has no remaining little petty uh, dominion of which to crush. There will come a time at the end of all things when Satan and his kingdom is thrown into the lake of fire, that there will be no more work to do. But to enjoy the blessings of the ever-blessed one is an eternal blessing and joy and happiness. And it's also the greater joy because all the glory of it is the Lord. Uh, this is, I mean, the, the role in heaven is, is the way the Old Testament and the New Testament at places speaks of that, uh, that, that doctrine of election, that sure foundation that we have in Christ Jesus, that is love, that is given to us without merit, that redounds to his mercy. But it also means that when we rejoice in that and make it sure in our own hearts that we are assured of it, it is a way of rejoicing in God that brings all the glory back unto the Lord. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Enjoying His mercy to us is a way that we eternally bring glory unto God. And so it works more fully into that great work that the Lord has to glorify Himself because He Himself alone is glorious. If we started rejoicing over much on casting out devils, we would forget that the devils are cast out in thy name, O Lord, and start to think that they're cast out by our own power. And we'd start congratulating ourselves. And we'd start to look upon our ministry as somewhat what to set us apart from our fellow Christians that aren't doing as much for the Lord. So what are the lessons and uses here? First, uh, returning to Satan's kingdom, it is the business of the gospel to cast down Satan's kingdom. In the world, and in your own soul, you have a battle to fight. And if you do not fight against Satan, it is because you have been tempted by the wiles of Satan. Where the gospel is fully known and embraced, Satan can't reign. That means that we have to examine ourselves. 
We have to see the fruit of God's holiness. We are not saved by works. Works do not play in our salvation. The works, the good works that the gospel calls us to are the whole point of the free grace of salvation. You are freed from the dominion of Satan because you couldn't free yourselves in order now that you might do good works. Are you bearing fruit unto the Lord? Are you becoming more holy? Are your thoughts becoming higher and more heavenly in Christ Jesus? Are your desires and temptations... You know, the Christian life is going to ebb and flow. You're going to have setbacks and you're going to backslide a little bit here and there. But we want to see that the victories come quicker and that the falls are more shallow. If you look at it as a graph going up, maybe up and down, but as the ups and downs nevertheless have a heavenly trend. Because this power of Satan has a downward trend. In the gospel. Satan. Is the enemy of the gospel. And we can't make compromises with him. And. The glorious thing is. Is that Satan cannot thwart your work in Christ. If you are determined to be holy. Even as he is holy. If you see that promises that. That we shall be like him. When he shall appear. uh, Because we shall see him as he is. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, then we also go to the next verse. And they who say such things purify themselves even as he is pure. That we recognize that no work done here for Christ's glory is vain. It cannot be thwarted by the devil. He might send his serpents and his scorpions against us. He might send uh, even worse things against us. But as long as we are doing the work of Christ in our own hearts in our own families, in our own communities, that he can't thwart that. But the greatest joy belongs to all believers. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Understand what this does. You know, only one of us is a pastor. Only one of us has the name of being, uh, at least in the world's mind, you know, works for the gospel. We all have a gospel work to do. We all know that. But there's a temptation to look at the one, at the pastor and say, well, he does more than I do. It's a, t- a temptation for the pastors to look at those ministers with bigger ministries saying they have more, they do more than I do. It's a temptation to look at missionaries that go into the darkest regions and say they do more than I do. And that may be or it may not be. We should all be faithful in what is given unto us. And sometimes when, when that, those more quiet things are given, God does the greater work. But nevertheless, we all have a different work. We all have different success in that work. And we all have different exposure to the church in that work. But we all have calls to rejoice in the greatest joy of the gospel. Because if you have any claim to the gospel at all, it is because your name is written in heaven. That this doctrine here is a great equalizer. You know, he sends out the 70, but he sent out the 12 earlier. The 70 and the 12 are not the same. 
The 70 are shocked that they are doing the same things the 12 are doing. But what Jesus is telling them, whether they're the, the 12 or the 70, or they're that myriad of crowds that are around him, remember the women there as well, that the greatest joy is equal to them all. That they all have cause to rejoice that their name is written in heaven. The greatest joys of the gospel isn't for the elite or the select few. It is for his church as his church. And if God be for us, who can be against us? If our names are written in heaven, it means that God looked down upon us when we were yet his enemies. He saw us in ruination. He saw us in a self-destructive pattern. He saw us as his enemy, and yet he loved us. Came in the flesh. Suffered what we could never suffer. So that we might enjoy what we would never be able to enjoy without him. That eternal love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the Bride of Christ, his church. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask indeed that you would deliver us from the power of Satan. We ask that we would see by your work in our lives, Satan fall like lightning. We ask, Father you would most assuredly confirm your work in our own hearts, that we might know that we are known of you, that we might know that you love us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.